Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw. Dr. Jefferson Shaw attended undergraduate at Brown University here in my home state of Rhode Island and subsequently obtained a Master's of Health and Health Policy from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. She completed medical school at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, after which she went back to D.C. for her internal medicine residency at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Her fellowship training is in allergy and immunology, which she completed at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland. She also has specialized training in bioethics undertaken at the NIH. She is on the cusp of starting a new job as an assistant professor of allergy and immunology in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences and Arkansas Children's Hospital. Dr. Jefferson Shaw, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So can you tell me more about yourself aside from the biographical information I've provided and how you came to work where you do? Absolutely. Um, So I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, Very large family out there. I'm the youngest of five girls, which people Mm -hmm. are always um, surprised by and say how my poor dad, he had to take care of five, five young girls in the house all the time. But <laughs> I was one of I think kids. boys and girls are very different and I'm I don't know I think they they each present their unique challenges. So. <laughs> they yeah. they too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um you know I was one of those kids who always wanted to be a doctor um from the time I was really little. There aren't other, you know, physicians in my family. Um I come from mm-hmm. a family mostly of lawyers um and teachers actually. So, Ooh, so good Ar- arguers and educators. I like it. it yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, I didn't really know exactly what that meant to be a doctor until I was about really 17 years old. I had my own medical emergency that landed me um, in the emergency room and I required emergency surgery, um, which was very, very scary and very eye opening uh, for mm-hmm. me. And kind of shaped the way that I looked at medicine, the way that um, people are treated, patients are treated, uh, kind of advocacy and um, giving agency to people. And so that has always stuck with me throughout my medical training and um, the way that I practice today. Um, mm-hmm. As far as as far as allergy goes, I've always had allergies. I always thought it was super interesting, but the part of allergy and immunology that really stuck with me in the beginning was the immunology part, which is really that study of the basic cellular nature of our immune system. And it really um, is the groundwork for almost every other specialty. So I find it fascinating. There's always new information coming out. And uh, at this moment in time, it's particularly um, useful to know about immunology. Um, Yes. mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, yeah. Yeah, pretty much perfect for this moment. So, Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I'm at University of Arkansas Medical Sciences now um, for a few reasons. One is I wanted to be closer to home. Mm-hmm. I uh, had been in California for about three years. My parents are both in their 70s. They're in New Orleans, um, lots of family there. And um, I just wanted to be close to home. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to be just a, I can hop in my car and drive home if I needed to. And yeah. um, I think a lot of people don't realize that UAMS has a large research institute. And as a researcher, that was you know huge for me. They're doing lots of state-of-the-art um, things down here in health disparities and in asthma care, which is where my research lies mostly. And um, both my husband and I were able to find um, good jobs here. So I'm happy to be here. 
Yeah, that's perfect. I know they have a very strong pathology department, so I'm sure it's like part of a larger system. That's exciting for you. Although what an interesting time to move. So so I reached out to you after reading your piece, your recent piece in the Huffington Post titled COVID-19 has devastated the Black community. Here's why and what needs to change, which I've linked to in the show notes. And I encourage those listening to read it. It's very powerful. In it, you note, quote, I am very aware of my blackness, yet the impact of COVID-19's racial disparities still surprised me. Can you talk a little bit about what you what made you put pen to paper or I suppose your fingers to keys to write this article? Absolutely. So for a long time, I've been thinking about um, writing about microaggressions that I have personally um, had to deal with uh, as a physician, um, but also as a trainee. And then, you know, lots of, of my colleagues have had to deal with the same thing. I knew I was not alone in that. Um, it was quite hard to kind of wrap my brain over the years around how I wanted to write that. And in this moment with COVID-19 happening, um, I just, something came over me and I decided I wanted to write. And so I did. And what kind of came out was, much more personal than I thought it would be. Um, mm-hmm. I would consider myself a pretty private person. Um, mm-hmm. So it was very personal. And uh, I reached out to the Huffington Post who had put out a, a, I guess, call for people who wanted to write about health disparities and being African-American or Black American during this moment. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, worked with the with the editors there and and kind of got what what you what you read. It was very um, cathartic, and I'm so happy I was able to do it, and that so many people were able to read it. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I'm so happy that people were able to see themselves in it. So I had a number of of people that I know from medicine, mostly Black women, who were like, "Oh my gosh, this is exactly you know, it's all the same thing." all the time, people saying mm-hmm. horrible things to you sometimes at working, having to navigate that. Um, and, you know, with COVID-19, the other thing is that I had had lots of family and friends personally impacted. And so sure. I wanted to make sure I was a voice for them as well. Right. That's interesting what you said about the feedback. I um, I think a lot about, you know, the way, way, uh, the way we talk to trainees especially which seems like some of the instances you cite and um happened to you when you were in training and the imbalance in the power dynamic you know and whether or not trainees feel empowered especially trainees who are part of underrepresented groups feel empowered to speak up on their own behalf with the power imbalance and i i think the answer to that question at least on in the instances i can think of from my past would be a resounding no um and i I can imagine that's only compounded when the um, the sort of uh, gestalt of what people are indicating towards you has something to do with who you are, you know, like what you look like and what group you belong to. It's just, Absolutely. well, saddening, angering and all those things. But like you said, at least now you're giving it a voice. And like you said, a lot of people are seeing themselves in it. So I think that's maybe a first step towards change. I think um, so. And, you know, you know, one thing I found, um, honestly, is during this moment, I've seen a lot of trainees actually writing. And mm-hmm. I'm, I've been so happy because I don't know that I had, just like you're saying, with the power um, imbalances and just the structures in which we work and live. I don't know that I had the courage back then. I would have had the courage yeah. back then to say anything. So I right, um, right. Applaud, applaud them completely. Completely. And I think 
that is one of the things about medicine which can be good in terms of mentorship. It can also be very destructive in terms of empowering people who should feel like they can speak up and defend themselves or speak out against something. Um, but we have such a rigid hierarchy in some parts of medicine that it's sometimes not possible, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you speak in your piece about being from New Orleans. Um, it seems from your educational history that you've lived all over the country, but New Orleans is a unique city in that um, it was recently hit hard by a natural disaster. I mean, Hurricane Katrina wasn't that long ago. And through an accident of timing was also hit early in the pandemic after um, the Mardi Gras festivities were presumed spreading event um, kind of surrounding those celebrations. So though you were not living in New Orleans at the time, what has this experience been like for your family and friends um, who are in New Orleans? It seems that they were in the beginning of the first wave and now they're getting caught up in whatever you want to call this recent surge we're having here in the summer, sort of like the second part of the first wave. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to watch your hometown deal with this crisis? Yes. Um, it's been very, very hard. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the fact that I'm not there actually makes it a lot harder for me. Um, mm -hmm. I think as a, a person from New Orleans, I, I hold it very, you know, close to my heart. I'm very, um, when people talk about Hurricane Katrina, I get very, very emotional, just as mm -hmm. many, many people who are from there do. Um, mm -hmm. As a physician, I want to help, right? Um, I'm not mm -hmm. licensed in Louisiana, so I can't mm -hmm. go there and, you know, hop in a hospital somewhere to work. Um, but then, you know, I think about my family and friends who are there and trying to, to help them navigate what's going on and to understand there's so much information about how COVID-19 spreads, um, kind of what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, all these different things, lots of misinformation. Right. So trying mm -hmm. to be a source to kind of parse through all that information for them. Um, my, uh, my parents, I mentioned before, they're, they're in their 70s. My father has um, comorbid conditions. He's had a quadruple bypass when he was in his 50s. He has hypertension. Mm -hmm. He has hyperlipidemia. Mm -hmm. He is in that that group that's high risk, right? My right, mom is right. much more healthy, um, but she's older. So, you know, I literally think about them every single day, like, oh my gosh, are they okay? What are they doing? And they've been very, very good as far as doing social distancing, staying home, um, mm -hmm. not having contact with lots of other people. I'm very happy right. about that. Yeah. But despite that, I've had several family members, um, as I mentioned in my piece, who've gotten sick. I've had two family members who've died of COVID-19. Um, I've had, you know, I know countless other people who are not in my family who have gotten severely ill and have passed away. Um, and so it's very personal, you know, um, but I think what has kind of made it a, a kind of good and bad, I guess I would say for me is with my background, um, I think I understand a bit more of what is going on in some ways. And I also am having mm. a critical eye when I look at the information out there. So for instance, if I have someone send me a paper that they, or an article that they found um, that has just you know horrible information that makes no sense, I'm easily able to say, that doesn't make sense. Please stop spreading that on Facebook. And they're like, mm -hmm. okay, sounds good. You know, like little things mm -hmm. like that, that can yeah. help people in their everyday lives. Um, especially yeah. the people that I know personally. So you seem to have been moving and changing jobs during this crisis. Can you talk about 
where you were when you realized that the country was in for a really hard time, say back in maybe February-ish, and what it has been like to relocate for your job during this time? Yes. Um, I would say in California, uh, which is where I was when all this started in San Diego, we were not very worried in February, to be honest. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think, and, and I would say the majority of the country, other than probably Seattle, uh, San Francisco and New York City were sort of in the mm-hmm. same boat where we're like, yeah, well, they'll get it under control. It will be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that really the maybe the second week of March is when I started to become more concerned. And it was when there was an, a major uptick in cases um, outside of those places that I mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. In California and where I was working uh, at UCSD, Within our division, so allergy, immunology, and rheumatology, um, like I mentioned, with immunologists, we we are kind of really looking at how things are spreading, what the the underlying issues are with any infectious disease, and we were on high alert. Um, mm-hmm. I think more so than some of the other divisions in our um, in our school, and we were one of the first ones to really push for. Um, stopping non-essential, non-emergent procedures, Mm -hmm. uh, non-essential, non-emergent clinic visits, all those types of things. And so we kind of shut things down pretty fast um, at UCSD and at Rady Children's, which I'm very happy about. In the coming weeks, things got worse and worse and worse, of course. And, um, you know, in in all of that, I I knew I was leaving and I had already planned on leaving um, in April, actually. It was supposed to be my last day. Um, my husband was already here in Arkansas, so mm-hmm. I was in California by myself without family close by um, with my two dogs. <laughs> it was very mm-hmm. stressful trying oh, to, yeah. you know, make sure I'm wiping everything down. I'm wearing a mask. Yeah. I'm, you know, all these things. Yeah. And then I thought, how on earth am I going to get to Arkansas? Because my plan yeah. was to fly, right? Oh, and yeah. no. I want to say yeah. maybe that Dr. Fauci went on um, – one of the news shows and said, someone asked him, would you get on an airplane right now? And he said, unless it, I had to do it for work or for something that had to do with the public health of the nation, I would not get on an airplane. And I stopped yeah. in my, you know, it stopped me. I was like, oh gosh, I, I literally can't fly anymore. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it, you know, it was very hard. It, it worked out. I had movers come and I worked out a deal where I didn't put my things on like a big moving truck that went all over the country. They went straight from where I was in California, straight to Arkansas and got all of my things here within like two days, I want to say. Um, oh, wow. That's really good for that, it, that big of a move, having it, done it a couple of times. Right, it's, right. It can be horrible. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I was so happy yeah. that worked out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a cousin. This is actually a very funny story that I will tell you another time, but I'm going to briefly <laughs> say it. I have a cousin who is a, a truck driver and oh. he's based in New Orleans and um uh, he called me randomly and said, Hey, I know you're moving. How are you going to get there? And I said, you know what? I have no clue. I've been trying to figure that out. My husband, Sanjay, he was here working. He, his, you know, he couldn't leave work anymore. because Everything's going crazy. So he can't drive with me. He can't fly to get me. Um, I don't, I didn't want to drive by myself with two, um, two dogs for that long of a, of a period, particularly because I would have to stop in all these places along the way. Um, My cousin hopped in his truck from Louisiana, drove to California and picked me up and drove me having a big family, (laughs) drove me all the way to Arkansas. 
with my two dogs wow. and all my, and you know, the extra stuff that I had. So, I mean, having a large family, is awesome. He, he's great. Yeah. I'm so happy that he was able to do that for me. Yeah, um, that's great. And, you know, so I wouldn't have to kind of do those, those things um, with lots of stress. So it worked yeah. out. <laughs> I mean, moving across the country is stressful enough. Having any sort of thing to help it is so much better. Um, I'm glad to hear that you arrived safely too, because that can be what is moving. Like I said, moving is stressful. Pandemic plus moving is can be infinite stress if you don't look exactly. out. Um, so our country, America, is going through a moment of reckoning with all of us taking a hard look at what it means to, quote, be American and how all the citizens are served or not served by underlying systems. I wonder if the current climate of people really listening to what communities of color have to say, or at least from my perception, they are, it, you can uh, debate that if you'd like. Um, I wonder if that would be happening if not for COVID-19, but it's hard to articulate for me just why I think that. In your piece, you note the results of a recent poll which showed that Black Americans are twice as likely to know someone who has tested positive or died from COVID-19, which I found stunning, especially given the lack of avail availability of testing in many communities, which makes me wonder what the actual numbers really are, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, so do you see these two massive stories as being related like I do? And if so, how do you tie them together as someone experiencing this time, not only as a physician, but also as a Black American? Um, I absolutely think they're related. Um, you know, really, I think it's about a right to health and a right to live. Uh, and, and that's how I would frame kind of the interconnection between the, between COVID-19, between health disparities, um, uh, disparate uh, mortality, and also everything else that's been going on with policing and things like that, living wild, black and brown in the United States. And, you know, I know when people were out protesting, which they still are, when people were out protesting, there was a big concern that this would be a super spreading event for COVID-19, which thus far has not, it doesn't seem that that's been the case. Um, but, you know, people who were out there said, this is bigger than this pandemic. And I found that absolutely profound. It really is, even without the pandemic going on, to be a person of color in the United States, there are many things that you cannot do. Um, there are many threats that you have uh, to your life, just literally because of how you look. And um, and that really is what it's is all about. So I think they're related. I think that we have to focus on how we treat people, how um, people are expected to live and die in the United States, how people have lived and died and why that is so. Why, and I wrote this in, in that article, why, you know, when I was on a Zoom call with colleagues, why was I the only one who had family and friends who were impacted? It, right. like it, I could not wrap my brain around it. Um, except that I know it's because of, or I knew at the time that it was because of the structures in which we live that made people who uh, look like me more susceptible to, um, to being in situations where they came in contact with, uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and then subsequently got infected. Um, yes. So, yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's something I think about, especially given the disparities we're seeing in infection rates and mortality rates, the fact that a lot of people from these communities are 
quote unquote essential workers, which, you know, that word seems like it's loaded to me, the word essential in that context, mm-hmm. um, because they, I'm not sure they have a choice about whether or not they're essential. Mm-hmm. And then um, just the underlying, it, it goes back sort of to the power disparity thing that they really have an option not to go to work. I don't, I don't think some people do. So uh, it's just something all of us should be thinking about. Um, so we, we talked about how you trained in immunology. You have a very long training history, um, but you seem tailor-made for this moment as a physician, a scientist, an immunologist, and an ethicist on top of that. So you've spoken uh, about the recent trials for a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. It is understandable that the nation and the world are holding its breath for any sign of good news or a way to lessen the impact of this deadly disease. I'm sure your friends and family seek you out to the point um, you've considered recording like an outgoing voicemail message about vaccine trials on your phone. (laughs) I can only imagine. (laughs) But um, while these results seem promising, you've spoken about some aspects of the early results, which weren't caution. Can you talk about the latest batch of results which have been released? And if you wouldn't mind just kind of folding in the structure of a vaccine trial, like phase one, phase two, because I'm sure that's like breathing for you. Also, do you see these results as a preview for the role that communities, how do you, how do you contextualize what this means for communities of color going forward with COVID-19? Yes. Um, so there have been two recent uh, trials that have results available to the public. Um, one was done in the U.S. Uh, it's by Moderna and NIH. It's an mRNA vaccine-based um, vaccine uh, for COVID-19. It was a phase one trial, which I'll talk about in a second what phase one means, um, and it had 45 participants. The second trial was done in the UK. Um, it was a phase one, phase two trial. Uh, it had about a thousand participants, and it was done by AstraZeneca. Um, I believe it's an adenovirus-based uh, um, uh, vaccine. So mm-hmm. for um, you know trial phases, in the very beginning, you have first preclinical, which is um, looking at how a vaccine works in, in uh, non-humans, so in, usually in primates or in mice or something like that. Uh, usually it's looking at safety and if it has some sort of um, stimulation of the immune system that, that seems efficacious. So mm-hmm. once that's done, it, you go into phase one trials, which are started in humans. Those are the first ones in humans. They're usually very small. The main goal is looking at safety. Um, so that's the reason why they're small. They're not in, in large populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, phase two trials usually are looking at dosing, number one, and number two, efficacy. Um, so mm-hmm. how, how uh, good is the vaccine? Does it do what you want it to do or not? Um, then you can get into phase three trials, which are the, the last phase kind of before you have a drug that's or a vaccine that's approved. So phase three trials, in some cases, will compare the um, vaccine or drug of choice to what's called standard of care. So standard of care is whatever we're using right now to prevent disease or, um, or mortality or, or any of those things, some sort of endpoint. Mm-hmm. Right now mm-hmm. for SARS-CoV-2, we don't really have true standards of care, right? Because we don't have any vaccines to compare to. Um, The other thing in phase three trials is you start to open it up to really large groups of people. So hundreds of thousands of people in some cases to see Mm -hmm. how the the vaccine really works in large populations. And you want to make sure those populations are very diverse. And when I say Mm -hmm. that, um, most of the time people are pushing for racial ethnic diversity, age diversity, uh, gender diversity, all of those things matter because we need to see how 
um, how it works in, in all these populations so it can be generalizable uh, when, it, when it comes out. So, right. and that's all before FDA approval of a drug or a vaccine. So after phase three, if things go well, you know, they ask the FDA to approve the medication or the vaccine. If it is approved, then it's available for general reuse um, across the United States. So right now, the two trials that were reported, one in the U.S., one in the U.K., the U.S. one was just in phase one. They already have phase two that's underway, but they did not report results of that. And then the Mm -hmm. U.K. trial was a phase one slash uh, phase two trial. So they did both phases kind of kind of together. And they're also Mm -hmm. um, enrolling for phase three uh, as we speak. Um, You know, the results were very, very promising. I would say it showed that they seem to be very safe. Um, and the safety profile is similar to other vaccines. And they also seem to be um, efficacious in looking at uh, what we will call surrogates for efficacy. So in this case, how many neutralizing antibodies did the vaccine induce? Um, were T cells induced well? Were B cells induced well? Things like that. Um, my problem, which you mentioned with these, yeah. was that Although these trials are small and they're supposed to be small, they were overwhelmingly white. Um, So the U.S. study was 89% white. The U.K. study was 90% white. We know Mm -hmm. here in the United States that black and brown people are disproportionately infected and die from Mm COVID-19. So this study just at face value is completely not generalizable to the population in which you need the vaccine to work. The same thing in the UK. I think a lot of the US um, public is not aware. In the UK, it's a very similar story as far as um, uh, uh, disparate outcomes for um, people of color. Uh, Mm -hmm. And for very similar reasons, also lots of this kind of uh, frontline workers, essential workers, quote unquote, um, people who, who, you know, just because of how they live and work, are coming in contact um, with the virus and then becoming infected um, subsequently. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very critical of this. I think that we have to have some product that is generalizable where I feel comfortable that it's going to work on me and my mm-hmm. mom and dad and my sisters and my nieces and nephews, my husband, my friends, whoever it is. And I don't feel comfortable at this point if it if it's only studied in um, white populations that that we would know that that is true. Um, the NIH has announced that they, for the phase three trial at least of the um, the vaccine that's being produced by Moderna and NIH, that they're hoping to uh, enroll much more. Uh, geographically diverse and um, racial and ethnic, um, ethnically diverse populations. And um, my friends in New Orleans, actually, and family in New Orleans have told me in the different newspapers and on the news and things like that, they're, they've been seeing advertisements for um, people to enroll in these trials. So that's, you know, that's a good thing. Um, yeah, that's hopeful. For it's sure. hopeful. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, we will see. Yeah, I think I think that's very important to keep to keep in mind. And I, I on a previous show, was talking to another scientist about pregnant women and how they're often excluded from vaccine trials for understandable reasons. But then again, if pregnant women turn out to be more susceptible to adverse outcomes with COVID nineteen, um, perhaps the vaccine would be, you know, 
better given to them than not given to them. Right. I certainly know the second I, I was pregnant, they were coming at me with a flu vaccine, you know, so <laughs> it was a, um, it, it's just something to think about. And it's something to um, consider because um, sometimes when you're in the midst of a crisis like this, it's hard to stop and pause and make sure you're being careful and doing everything um, that's going to be the best for future outcomes. So to shift topics just slightly, your thesis, which I noted you did at Brown, was called Morals in Action, Responsibilities in the HIV AIDS Pandemic. Do you see any similarities in how the epidemic, that epidemic played out and how the current situation is unraveling? Do you think that your knowledge base in the subject matter of HIV and AIDS has affected how you're experiencing the current national situation? I do. And um, funny enough, a few years ago, my parents found a paper copy of my thesis and, hey. <laughs> and I, I unearthed it uh, uh-huh. a few days ago from a box somewhere. Um, and so I've read it. That's uh, impressive that you still have it. I, I, I know. <laughs> With all the moving you've done. Yeah. That you've been able to keep track of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I read a little bit of it last night. It's extremely long. It's 62 pages, but mm-hmm. um I read a little bit of it last night, and I have to say it holds true to COVID-19. So, uh-huh. you know, the the premise of it, of the thesis at the time was that we live in one world, we're a global community, we're all interconnected, and so it is immoral um, for many reasons um, to think that people in the United States, people in more, um, more developed, let's say, nations... Um, or more rich nations uh, should not be concerned with what's going on across the globe. And um, in the thesis, I kind of listed many, many reasons why this is the case, including uh, power structures in which we live, um, power structures of the, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, many other organizations that sort of get money from places like the United States and other uh, super rich countries. Um, And we then set the policies that kind of impact the rest of the world, right? And so if we're setting policies that are detrimental in any way to places that are are being overrun by certain diseases, we we need to kind of look at that and figure out why that's the case um, and why we are valuing things like um, economics over people's lives. So... Mm -hmm. I think it's still very relevant um, to what's going on now. I think, you know, in the beginning, a lot of us thought this is something that is just going to be in Asia. There is no Mm -hmm. way it's going to come to the United States. Then it kind of was across Europe and then the United States. And I think, you know, for the average American, it caught us off guard. And we forgot Mm -hmm. that we actually, it's one big world. We're all um, in the same bubble and you cannot escape that. Um, and, you know, to go one step further, I think kind of part of what I argued is that you have to not only think of yourself um, and your neighbor that's really, you know, right close to you, next to you in your, your physical neighborhood, but also to those people far away as your neighbors as well. And you have mm-hmm. to be concerned with their health and well-being um, because we're all kind of one big family. So yeah. I still believe that. Um, I think, you know, here in the U.S., though people with comorbid conditions who are older, who are poorer, um, those from communities of color are impacted more, that even if you're not in one of those groups, 
you should still be concerned with what's going on and you should still want to, um, to address it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you tie it to the global aspect of the HIV AIDS pandemic. I was thinking also about the early days of that epidemic when people didn't even know what was causing HIV and AIDS. It was, you know, scary, but there was this, you know, connection to, um, you know, gay men. And then there was an, an otherness to that, that I think is similar in some way to what people were able to do at the beginning of this pandemic in Mm -hmm. that they could make it other and it wasn't us, it wasn't going to affect us. And then both pandemics as they sort of roiled on and, and became more widespread, people were forced to admit that it didn't matter what Mm -hmm. group you belong to, you know, that there was going to be an effect on your life um, in some way, shape or form. And that, the only way to solve the problem is to work together, which I hope, I hope we're learning, but there are days when I don't think that's true. So, um, so to shift slightly once again to the topic of diversity. So diversity, equity, and inclusion seem to be getting much attention lately, a trend, which I hope persists in a way that's real. I struggle myself with how to be an advocate for underrepresented, underrepresented groups in my field and in medicine in general. Obviously, all members of the medical community need to step up and do better. And um, the onus for change cannot be placed solely at the feet of those who are in the underrepresented groups. I think that's um, logically inconsistent. It doesn't make any sense. So as someone who speaks out about these matters, I was hoping you could speak to your experiences as a trainee and as a physician, um, maybe specifically to try to get some actionable information. What do the places have in common that seem to be doing this well? And what lessons should we learn from those places? Right. So I think um, I would say three different things uh, that are common in places that are doing this well. One is an intentional commitment to it. Um, Number two is funding for it. And number three are programs. Um, You know, I think a lot of Places, unfortunately, will put out uh, statements about diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, but that's it. They don't actually put any money behind it, um, and they don't put any programs in place to really um, push it forward. And so you have to have all three, really, to make a big impact. Um, I'm so happy that you you mentioned that the onus for change should not be placed solely at the feet of those in underrepresented groups, because I wholeheartedly believe that. I think that in so many um, instances for these committees. So you want to have, of course, people of color represented very well among those committees, right? But you don't want to ask the sole um, assistant professor of medicine who is a person of color to head each and every one of those committees, right? We are, we want to be doctors. We want to take care of patients. We do want to work on this, these topics also, but, you know. But you're a whole human. You're not, it's not the only, you know, and they see you as a person who's successful in medicine and who's also a member of an underrepresented group. And they think, oh, great, well, here she is. And we'll just have her solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And to me, I don't know if lazy is the right word. It certainly belongs in the description someplace, but it's it's like, sure, fine. You need to make sure that someone from that group is included to make sure you're doing it correctly. But also, I think the work, the real work needs to be done by everybody. Exactly. 
Yeah. Um, that's the only way to make it work because if, yeah. if it's just me, you yeah. know, I can't, I cannot do it alone. If it's just you, you cannot do it alone. We all have to work together. And, you know, this idea of being intentional about it and really, um, really caring about producing good outcomes, not just yeah. caring about the label that we are, you know, our group is committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, kind of the lip service that we get, the performative allyship that we get. So I think none of that works. Um, a funny anecdote, uh, one place where I uh, worked, else I worked or trained, um, they, uh, I was in a session once and I, I counted, I always count how many Black people are in a room um, when I go somewhere because it's usually not a lot. And um, all, all the time, like in every situation, that sounds exhausting. every single situation, it is exhausting. Okay. Not every single yeah, situation, it's, it's, but yeah. <laughs> in yeah. lots of, um, I would say lots of professional situations I do. Okay. Okay. That um, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> not I mean, like I, I, you do it however you want. It just <laughs> seems it's, it sounds exhausting. I have a hard enough time remembering when my meetings are and where they are and you have to also count. So, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> so go ahead. Sorry that's okay. So in this particular yeah. meeting, I counted, um, I want to say four and it was a group probably of like 200 or so people. Mm. And they were talking about wellness uh, for mm-hmm. physicians and, you know, going through all these things about, um, you know, having programs for this, blah, blah, blah. And then they have one slide about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the, the person who was moderating said, we're doing really well with this. Don't you all think? And everyone said, yes. And then they went to the next slide. And I was like, what, what's going on? There what are this four happened? of us in this room. <laughs> what what mm-hmm, is like, mm-hmm. it was, you know, mind boggling. But again, if you don't have people to point that out, the mm-hmm. the the natural um, progression is to not notice it unless you are that person who counts every time you go into the room, right? Right, and so, it kind of goes back, yeah, to the theme which keeps coming up in our conversation about power dynamics. Mm-hmm. We know from statistics that women of color, that people of color are not in leadership positions in academics, generally speaking. I mean, it happens, but they're certainly not represented based on their numbers in the population by far. So the idea that a brand new assistant professor is going to be able to stand up in that room and say, actually, 196 other people, I don't think we're doing a great job. Like, how would that go over? Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's so nuts to me that people think that's how we should be solving these problems. Exactly. No, you're you're 100% right. So, you know, I think it has to come from the top. There has to be an yeah. intentional commitment to seeing yeah. what's truly going on, to backing it up with um, money um, and for people's time and with good programs to improve it. Um, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's it's not going to work out. Yeah, that's good. Those are good three three good things that I think we should all kind of think about. Uh, and if it's like, um, you know, I'm, I'm a pathologist. I know you're not a pathologist, but this kind of reminds me of something I tell my trainees when we're looking at a slide and it's something common, right? Like they recognize it right away. I said, well, don't, don't be complacent. You always have to think about the weird things. You always Mm -hmm. have to remind yourself that they exist or you will never diagnose them because you're not looking. So it's kind of like the same idea. If you don't get up in the morning and think, how am I going to do better today about intentionality and, you know, improving representation for people? You'll get busy. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily malicious, but um, it has to be done with intention. So I like that. I'm going to yeah, write those three things down. <laughs> um, so in the hopes of ending the show on a somewhat lighter note, 
uh, so it's not all serious. Um, I have lived, uh, you're, you're someone who has lived a lot of places. I've lived in Kentucky, North Carolina, Maryland, Colorado, and now Rhode Island. And so I have pre- uh, obviously some sort of predisposition to moving. Although I think that uh, people usually assume people who move a lot are in the military, but I think people who do medical training also move a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've lived all over the country. Do you have a favorite area or perhaps if you wish to be diplomatic, you could talk about a favorite time of year in selected parts of the country. For example, I would argue that fall in New England is pretty hard to beat. Um, mm-hmm. You've lived up here, so you can comment on that if you want. But winters in North Carolina were pretty wonderful um, <laughs> and they were easier to deal with. So what yeah. are you? What about you? Yeah, so I'll start. You didn't ask me this, but I'm going to start with my least favorite. Um, oh, okay. Uh, All right. Yeah, I, li- I like this. Say- pause. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Least, least favorite, favorite season. Season. Winter time uh-huh. in almost any okay. place. And okay. um, you know, I I'm from I'm from the deep south, and right, I right. like I like heat. I love humidity. <laughs> Although most people really? hate it, but I love oh, it. Oh, I hate it. Oh, I think it's <laughs> great. awesome. My- well, you've definitely <laughs> lived in some humid places. I mean, San Diego is like living yeah. uh, almost like the climate of Mexico. It's so warm exactly. there. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I love those things. I, I love to be warm and toasty. So, okay. um, you know, I think probably my favorite seasons really are spring and um, summer, but I think summer takes the cake only because of my allergies. So I have really terrible oh, springtime allergies. Okay. And um, in Louisiana, they're terrible. In D.C., they were terrible. I, um, yeah, I presume here in Arkansas, they'll be bad. Um, yeah, any, yeah, yeah. And in San Diego, they weren't too, too bad because San Diego's not all that green. Um, right. But if not for my allergies, springtime would be my most favorite season because it's hot, but it's not, you know, like oppressive. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oppressive. That's a good word for it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I, uh, I call this time of year a uh, shower climate, at least in my head, because when you look outside, it feels like you're in the bathroom right after you finished a shower and you're like, yeah. why did I even shower today? That's how I felt when I lived in North Carolina, at least it was so humid. Um, exactly. Sort exactly. of wilt in that kind of weather, but I'm so happy that there are people who enjoy it. Um, yeah. I'm sure Arkansas. I've, I've I don't know that I've been there in the summer, but I'm sure it's warm there in the summer. So it, it's um, very warm. It reminds me of home yeah. as far as the heat yeah, it's and probably, humidity goes. You're, yeah, you're not too far away from yeah. Louisiana climate. Climate speaking. So, <laughs> um, well, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you today. I really appreciate it, um, Dr. Jefferson Shaw. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as well. Yeah, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you.